That's a good reminder. Um, one of my favorite things about the Christmas season is the music. Um, Lisa and I were talking this week, and, and we decided that if we had to give up all of the hoopla, all of the presents, all of the shopping, all the desserts, all the party, all, everything that kind of goes along with what modern-day Christmas has become, if we had to give all of that up, the hardest thing for us to give up would be the music. Uh, that would be the last thing that would go, because Christmas music, you know, just comes around, um, you know, for a season of the year, and, and then you pack it all up and put it away, and it's so uh, refreshing to pull it out, and I have uh, I've been collecting Christmas music for quite some time, so it's kind of like a, a hobby to me to figure out just the right mix for the playlist for the party or the event or just an evening uh, at home. There's something that, there's something about certain songs sung by certain artists that have the ability to just take us back to moments. I mean, for me, I remember back when I was a kid, my my dad, he figured out, we had this old turntable that played records, and for you kids out there, a record is a black vinyl disc that has grooves on it, it goes around in a circle, um, and, and somehow it makes sound, it comes out the, you know, the, the old hi-fi, but anyway, we figured out that we could run a wire from the back of our uh, tuner underneath down into the basement and, and have it come up into my room and, and my sister's room. And, and we got these old, I think that there might have been automobile speakers. And, and so we rigged up a way to have a speaker in my room. Now that was pretty cool. Um, so I remember as a kid falling asleep during the Christmas season to, you know, one of the family's favorite records. I just lay there and listen. The ones, you know, the Christmas instantly for me, if I hear uh, Silver Bells by Johnny Mathis, it just, it's like instant Christmas. Or his version of Oh Holy Night, it just takes me all the way back to those days when I was a kid and, and walking up and down the streets in, in our town in, in Upper Michigan, and, and there's what we call snow that kind of goes on the streets at that time of the year there. So I can picture the snow and the storefronts lit up and the, and the decorations that were on the light poles, and, and I imagine the glow of the Christmas tree in our living room and how the light would flicker off the ceiling, and we'd just lay there with all the rest of the lights in the house off and just stare at the glow and the way that the pine needles would make patterns in the ceiling. There's just something about certain songs that can take you back just in an instant. For Lisa, it's uh, Andy Williams. Um, uh, what, what is it? It's the, it's, the, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Or John Denver, Aspen Glow. I love that one too. You know, I'm yeah, you're all nodding your head, so I know that there's individual songs. We could go through and, and list them, and uh, I just love the Christmas music throughout the years, and the newer versions that are coming out speak to me just every bit as powerfully as some of these older ones. And so we all find our music in a time and a place, and it just adds something to this. That would be the last thing that I would remove if, if I had to give, give it all up. We're in the second week of our 
Advent journey. And on the front of your bulletin, there's a graphic that says, More and Less Christmas. And the idea behind this year's Advent series is that there are things that, about Christmas that we need more of. And there are things about Christmas that we, can, that we you know, really could do with less of. And so we've done a visual uh, representation of that with the way we've decorated the sanctuary this year. If you notice that about right here, well, where these lights are, this half is all focused on the Advent wreath and the cross. No other decorations. Jesus can stand alone. Jesus is Christmas. We need more of this. And then on, on this side from here over, it's kind of a little overdone. You know, it represents all of the indulgence of our culture. Lots of packages and lights and Frosty is kind of overlooking, and I know some of you don't like that, but it, what I want you to do is every time that you come into this place, I want you to think about what we need more of, and it's more of this side over here, and what we, what we actually need less of, and it's this over here, more and less Christmas. We, we want to focus on fine-tuning our longings during this season preparing room in our hearts for the Christ child. And we need to long for less of this. And we need to long for more of Jesus in our life. Uh, last week, the word of the day, if you, if you had to boil down uh, our message last week into one word, it would be look. Look for God. Look for His redemptive activity in our world. Look for His grace in, in your life and, and in your community. And the idea was that when we look for God, it opens up our hearts and allows His grace to get into our lives. And sometimes we look at the wrong things. We look to this and, and we, uh, we indulge in this over here when really the void in our life should be filled by finding more of God. And so the encouragement was to, to look for God. This week, uh, if, you, if you kind of boil down uh, what we're going to talk about this morning into, into one word, it's, it's listen. So we had look. This week it is listen. Taking the time to quiet ourselves before God. To experience a, a, a sense of calmness. To experience calm in the middle of all the craziness and busyness of, of the season. See, there's this tension... There's this tension between Silent Night and Deck the Halls. Silent Night, Holy Night, Deck the Halls, you get the fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la, right? There's a tension there. And, and one character that I think represents this tension for us in the pages of Scripture is a character named Zechariah. He's the father of John the Baptist, and I, I'd invite you to open your Bibles. We're in the Gospel of Luke, starting in the first chapter. Uh, you could turn, your, turn in your Bibles there and stand with me. I'd like to read Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 5 uh, through 25. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
who belonged to the priestly division of Abia. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. They were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Well played, Zechariah. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. It's our story for this morning. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Uh, to be honest, I'm a bit sympathetic with Brother Zechariah. I, I, feel, I feel for this brother. And as I was reading this story, there's, there's really two things I want to tell you this morning. Um, I think there's, a, there's, there's more than one lesson, but there's, there's one lesson that I think we need to talk about on Zechariah's response. And there is a, a one reality of God that I want to talk about this morning. Nowadays, our modern day, when, when we get pregnant, well, not me specifically, but when families get, you know, are expecting and are with child, um, we, we like to share that news out. Most often, though, it, it spreads relatively slowly you know, because you want to make sure, and so you wait a few weeks, and, and maybe so only some really close friends and, 
close relatives know until you make the big announcement on Facebook with the cute little pictures. And, and then, you know, then it kind of maybe dies down a little bit until it's far enough along in the pregnancy where, you know, nowadays it's, it's kind of uh, the thing to have a gender reveal party. So when you find out if it's a boy or a girl, then you come up with some creative way to, to reveal what that is to the masses. Um, weeks later, um, or sometimes uh, every month, People like to, you know, post a picture of, okay, here's the baby bump this month, and, and here it is next. And so you, you start to see it's a nine-month process from, you know, when you, uh, when you find out and, until you have the baby. So it, it's kind of long and drawn out. And during this whole time of, of waiting, you begin to think about what this little one's going to be like. What, what are they going to look like? What, what are they going to be interested in? What will they become when they're older? Who will they associate with? What impact are they going to have on the world? And we begin to start thinking about these things, and we dream and we scheme even before the baby makes its presence. We have time to work up to all of these things. Zechariah, on the other hand, he gets all of that information in six sentences from an angel. He doesn't know that Elizabeth is present, is pregnant. Gabriel comes and makes an appearance and says, hey, uh, I got a surprise for you. Your prayer's been answered. And so uh, here's what he learns from Gabriel, Gabriel in just a couple seconds. Uh, your wife will become pregnant. It's a boy. Name him John. Uh, the people of Israel will rejoice at his birth. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even, even while he's still in the womb. He'll be the forerunner of Messiah. And he will come, he is, he is destined to prepare the hearts of people to receive God. So a few moments between Gabriel and Zechariah and his total reality has, has changed. He gets all of that information in just a few moments. All Zechariah wanted to do was his job. I mean, he is a, it, we know that he is a priest. And, and he, is a, he, he is serving in the temple at a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Now, the thing with priests in Israel, there were about 18,000 of them. And so, if you're a priest, you only got called up to serve in the temple uh, during the major religious holidays. There were three of them. And then and your service was two weeks during the rest of the year. So, you had the three major festivals and, and two weeks. That was, that was your job. And there were some special duties that, that happened within the temple. Offering incense on the altar was one of them, and, and they drew it by lot. It was kind of like by chance. And so if there's 18,000 priests, some of the priests never got this honor and privilege in their lifetime. This was Zechariah's Super Bowl, if you will. He was, he was chosen by lot to offer incense on the altar, which is, sits just outside the Holy of Holies. Big privilege. I would imagine as a priest, this is what you aspire to. 
if only I could have this opportunity to offer the incense, and then as, after you do that, then you come out and you speak a blessing over the people. Because they have brought, they have brought their sacrifices, and the, the priest puts the incense on the altar, and, and that burns, and it's a nice fragrance that goes up into the heavens. And the priest will come out and, and pronounce blessing over the people that, that God has indeed accepted your sacrifice, your sins are forgiven. Big moment for Zechariah. He's in the temple, probably thinking, I don't want to screw this up. I need to pay attention to every single detail of what I'm doing so that I do it just right because the people are depending on me. And so he gets into this place and he puts the incense on the altar and, and Luke tells us that Gabriel makes an appearance right there. He's interrupted from his service, from his job, from his Super Bowl by Gabriel, the angel that, that God sends to communicate with him. Luke says he was afraid. You think? Luke doesn't say he was just afraid. Luke says he was terrified with fear. So not only was he afraid, he was terrified and he was afraid. But, but Gabriel, he makes it all better. He says, don't be afraid. Uh, your prayer has been heard. I imagine what screamed through Zechariah's mind is, well, what's the last prayer I prayed? Your prayer has been heard. Okay, I blessed my food. I prayed that I wouldn't screw the offering up. Maybe I messed that up because there's an angel talking to me. I imagine, you know, you can think about a lot of things in the snap of a finger. Prayer was, uh, your wife is going to have a baby. Ha! You gotta be kidding me, Gabriel. I imagine that's a lot to take in in just a few seconds. And all Zechariah could stammer out was uh, an expression of doubt. I'm not really surprised at, at Zechariah's response here. That's a lot of information, that's a big pill to swallow in just a short time. And to get news like this, he considers all the circumstances and says, <clears throat> no, I don't think that that's accurate. Luke tells us a couple things about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse 6, uh, and these things help give us a little bit of context. Verse 6, Luke says, they are righteous and blameless people. doesn't mean that they're perfect or never make a mistake, or never commit a sin, righteous in the sense that they lived according to God's will in their life. They tried with all of their hearts. They didn't have a divided heart about following their own desire and following God's desire. They were all in, righteous and blameless, and they pursued God faithfully. These were good people. In a time where many people had given up on faith in God and had turned away to pursue their, their own course. They're righteous and blameless, says Luke. Verse 7, 
they were childless, and they were both very old. Uh, Luke's readers, who were familiar with Scripture, would have immediately recognized the connection between Zechariah and Elizabeth and Abraham and, and Sarah, who in the chapters of Genesis had a similar issue, where they were also childless, and God had promised that, that He would essentially birth Israel out of the offspring of Abraham. To be childless in those days was socially disastrous. One, one it's, uh, it creates an economic hardship. Maybe not during your, your working years. You could work and survive, but, but as, you be, as you aged and as you had reduced capacity in your ability to work and, and earn a living, you had kids in those days to, to come around you so that when, when you were old, they would take care of you. They would provide for you. They would, they would support you. And to be childless was economically uh, a hardship. But, but not only that, uh, rabbis taught, and it was the common belief in the land, that, that if you were childless, that, that you were somehow cursed by God because of some sin in your life. Elizabeth felt disgraced. We read that in, in verse 25. And so all of these things, I imagine, weighed heavily on the hearts of, of Zechariah and, and Elizabeth. See, sometimes, sometimes even righteous people suffer pain. Sometimes even good people experience uh, disappointments in life. And Luke, by, in, by including this piece of information, he's kind of making the statement, hey, the righteous and they're blameless, blameless, they're childless. All bad things that happen to us aren't because of some sin. And so Luke was trying to, to, to make the statement to the people that just because there's pain or disappointment in life doesn't, doesn't mean that they are cursed by God. So the lesson I want to consider for us today from, from, Ze from Zechariah's response is, it's kind of a lesson in how not to talk to an angel, right? Uh, but the lesson that I'm thinking about is, is that we sometimes respond to God's work in our lives by, oh, demanding too much evidence from God before we will trust and obey. In other words, when God speaks to us, when, when God asks us to do something, when God nudges us, we take the attitude of, well, I need some evidence or proof before I'm going to comply. Uh, Zechariah receives some good news, some really good news. It's astonishing, yes, but it's good news nonetheless, not only for he and, and Elizabeth, but for all of the people, says Gabriel. John is going to be a, a source of joy for this, for this couple and, and for the entire nation. But Zechariah, he doesn't respond with praise and thanksgiving and, God, thank you so much for hearing our prayer and answering it. Instead, verse 18, he says, how can I be sure of this? I'm old. And my wife, well, she's past her prime. She's well along in years. 
I imagine the sarcasm tone that he might have, and he's probably, you know, chuckling and, you know, uh, how am I, how's this going to happen, Gabriel? That doesn't make, it doesn't make any kind of sense. I need you to give me a sign. I need proof. I want some hard evidence that, that this is going to happen, and I want to say, well, your evidence is on the way, buddy, if you know what I'm talking about. A quick recap here. Zechariah wants a sign. He's a priest, right? Yes. Uh, he's in the temple on special duty in a very holy place in the temple that's just outside the Holy of Holies. And an angel, Gabriel, there's only two angels that are actually named in the pages of our scripture. Gabriel is one of them. And, and the Jewish people believed that Gabriel was the angel who stood before the very throne of God in heaven. And so whenever Gabriel is mentioned, he kind of represents the Shekinah glory of God wherever he appears. And the, the, the way the altar was set up, it's just outside the Holy of Holies. And, and Gabriel, Luke says, was on the right side of the altar, which means that it's kind of like Gabriel just walked out of the very presence of God up to the altar and says, hey, Zechariah, I got a message from God for you. So he's a priest. He's in the temple, a holy place. He is confronted by Gabriel, the angel. And the message is, God has heard your prayer. You think he needs another sign? Once in a while, though, when, when we run into circumstances and we feel God nudging us a little bit, all of those signs could be in place right there in front of us, and we say, you know what, I need a little bit more proof. I need a little bit more evidence before I'm going to act on that, God. I love the interplay between Zechariah's perception of reality and that of, of Gabriel's. Zechariah, well, he, he looks at human reality. Uh, I'm reading this text, and I... I have lots of questions. How long do you think Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed the prayer to have children? How long? Long time. But I read this and I'm thinking, I'm thinking they gave up on that prayer a long time ago. Moved on to a, a different prayer. Figured that, you know what? We're kind of past the childbearing years, so that prayer is not likely to ever, ever be answered in the way that we want it to be answered. I wonder how long it had been since they prayed that prayer. What was the gap in the number of months or even years or decades even? Scholars say that when Zechariah says, my wife is well along in years. Scholars say that that means that they were at least 60 years old. So if you think, well, maybe they held out until they're in their 40s, let's say, and let's just say that they were 60 or 65, that's 15, 20 or more years maybe since they had prayed that prayer. Are there things that you put in the category of that ship has sailed? 
it's probably not going to happen. I, I prayed that prayer for years, for decades. And God doesn't seem to be answering that prayer. So maybe I need to move beyond that one. We, we, have, a, we have the ability to look at our reality, and sometimes rightly so, and, and say, you know what, it's probably not going to happen. You look at your circumstances, you start to move on. Sometimes it's literally moving on. Sometimes it's emotionally moving on. Sometimes it's even spiritually moving. Is it a relationship with a, a sibling? Is it somebody you've been praying for for a long time, maybe a spouse or a close friend, that they would find salvation in Jesus? Is it a career change or a steady job? Is it a prayer that you've prayed over one of your kids that they would somehow figure out how to stop making bad choices? Is it uh, trying to break the cycle of, of an addiction in, in, in your own person or, or in a loved one? Is it financial peace and, and security? Well, I don't know what exact prayer you've been praying for a long time, but there are some of those prayers that, that after a while we think, you know what, I don't think God going to do anything on that one. Maybe I need to find a different prayer. See, Zechariah, he heard Gabriel's words, and they, they didn't add up to what he believed. They didn't add up to what he had experienced. Um, and, and I think we're similar. We look and we measure things based on, on our perception of reality and possibility. God's plans and his timing are often different than ours. God's timing is a lot of, in many cases, confusing to us. See, what we write off as impossible, it's, it's possible for God. What we think is impossible, anything is possible for God. See, Zechariah weighed his circumstances and Gabriel, <clears throat> this is the this is kind of comical. So you, you can laugh at things in the Bible because there's a lot of humor in the Bible, and this is one of those places that that I just start laughing because Zechariah, old man, and there's going to have a baby. That's kind of funny. Um, on the first hand, and then he makes all these excuses. He wants proof and a sign from God, and, and, and so he throws it back to Gabriel with this expression of doubt, and, and Gabriel, he says this, verse 19, I stand in the presence of God. Well, that's the ultimate trump card right there. Okay, you win. I got nothing, no response. to. How do you come back from, I stand in the presence of God? Gabriel might have a little different perspective than brother Zechariah here. Zechariah expressed doubt. And I have a hard time finding fault because when I look at Zechariah, I tend to notice myself. Are you any different? See, sometimes Christians have doubts. The doubt isn't necessarily the problem in the scenario here. It's okay to ask questions. A few verses later in Luke chapter 1, Gabriel makes an appearance to Mary. 
Jesus' mother, says, you're going to have a baby. She has a question. How? Not, I need a sign. It's okay to ask questions of how God might work and and ask Him for understanding. I think there's something deeper going on with Zechariah here. See, he has honest doubt, yes, but it's his inability to trust in the miraculous without hard evidence that kind of gets him in trouble. He gets a tongue lashing. He gets a scolding. He, Gabriel throws the 15-yard personal foul penalty on him, and, and he says, you know what? You, I'm going to strike you dumb for this whole pregnancy. Now, kids, striking dumb means mute. You can't say God struck you dumb when you fail your next test. It means he was silent. And there's a, it could mean that he just wasn't able to speak for the nine months. Uh, there's also a, a potential that he couldn't hear or speak for that entire time. Uh, and as I think about this, uh, is doubt getting to you? That's the question that I ask myself. Are there times where you just demand more proof before you'll act? See, sometimes underestimating God is as dangerous as rebelling against Him. Write that one down. Sometimes underestimating God is as dangerous as rebelling against Him. Our sin may not be an intentional and and willful act of disobedience or or defiance. It it may be found in a hesitation to pursue His righteousness. It may be a hesitation in putting our full weight in trusting God. See, what God promises, He will act upon only in a manner and timing that He chooses So think about how you respond to God. Sometimes I think we demand too much evidence and proof before we act. And the lesson here is that God wants us to trust Him right away with all things, knowing that with God all things are possible. And the reality that I wanted to teach you or to talk to you about God, the reality of God is that He speaks to us. That God communicates with us. And, and there's, there's three quick ways that, that I look at this text and, and notice that, that God speaks in these ways. The first one, that God speaks through the simple and the ordinary routines of our lives. Zechariah was on the job. Zechariah was at work. He was going about his business. He was tending to his duties in the temple. And God showed up and spoke to him. Zechariah and Elizabeth were told that they're blameless and righteous. These were faithful people. They were just going about their own business, and they were also about God's business. And God reached out, and and He spoke to them. He communicated with them through through the daily routines of their lives. And I trust that He could do the same for us. The second is that God speaks to us when we are at church in worship. Zechariah was, he was at work, but he was in God's house. 
You can hear God in this place. You can hear God speak in these chairs. You can hear God speak at, at these altars. I remember sitting in Sanctuary and College Church in Illinois, and we had a guest preacher in for a revival service or something, Pastor Wiseheart. And God had been working on my heart for a while, and I had kind of just been maybe demanding more proof, demanding more evidence. I need something specific and concrete. And so God had been nudging me, and something, I don't even know what Pastor Wiseheart said, but I just remember the presence of God in that place and Him trying to communicate. And the, so the altar call at the end went something like this. Everybody was seated. It was about this quiet. Yeah. And he said, if you hear God speaking to you through this message, I want you to stand up and come forward. No music. No talking. No, everybody's going to stand now and you just slip out into the aisle and come forward. I'm calling you out. If God's talked to you or He's nudging you in some way, just come forward. You got me. Somebody must have been cutting onions in the room at the time, too, because I just remember tears streaming down my face. But somehow I found my way to the front. God speaks to us in the context of our worship in this place. Zechariah was in the temple, participating in the worship of the people. And and he was at the altar when God spoke to him through Gabriel. And I suppose that God can still reach us in the context of our worship. I, I fully believe that God can speak to you through our songs and our prayers and the proclamation of the Word. I know that I spend a lot of time praying that you will meet Him through the ministry of this church. And I'm trusting that when God speaks to you, when you hear Him, that you will respond. I get really excited when when people come and share, you know what, I think God's talking to me. I, I think I think I need to get baptized. I think, I think maybe God's even calling me into the ministry in some fashion. That's happening right now, right here in this place. That gets me a little bit excited. Third thing is God speaks in whispers that we can only hear when we're silent. There's the tension that I said between Silent Night and Deck the Halls. Uh, I remember singing Deck the Halls. It must have been in youth group, or I'm pretty sure it was youth group. We were silly like that. But the game was kind of, it degenerated when we sang Deck the Halls. Uh, 
Christmas caroling would be deck the halls with boughs of holly. And then what comes next? Fa la 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 la. Well, it wasn't, you know, nice and in tune and metered. It was fa la 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 la. And it, it became a competition. Can I be louder than my neighbor? We were teens, so don't give me that look. You play games like that. Fa la 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 la. There's a tension between that noise and Silent Night. And as I was thinking about that, our culture operates on the fa-la-la. The louder the noise, the better. Because the louder the noise, that's more likely to get our attention. We'll turn our heads to see the loud noise. When the siren comes on, we look. When there's a shiny object, we look. The fa-la-la gets our attention. And sometimes when we, are, we become so fine-tuned to, oh, I guess all we need to listen for are the big blasts, then the quiet times in between, we don't pay attention. We, we've lost the ability to hear those frequencies of the soft and quiet message. The other kind of noise that clutters our thoughts is, uh, is our own thoughts. I talk to a lot of people who say, oh, you know what, all I need is some peace and quiet. But when you get to that moment of peace and quiet and all is calm and everything is silent, all you're left with is the noise in your own head. You run through every scenario you begin to worry. Maybe there's anxiety that sets in. And so when it's quiet, then you hear your own voice, and it's loud. That silence can be deafening. It can be unsettling. We need more silent night and less fa-la-la. See, it's in the quiet that we can hear the whisper of God. Back in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is out, and, and he's talking to God. And the angel says, go out onto the mountain. God is going to come by. Elijah goes out there, stands in the mountain in the presence of the Lord, uh, and is great and powerful wind came up and it tore the mountain apart is what the bible says the rocks smashed shattered god wasn't in that powerful wind after the wind there was an earthquake rattled the mountain big blast noise god wasn't in the big blast of noise after the earthquake, there was a fire, a roaring fire. And fires can be loud, can't they? God wasn't in the fire either. And after the fire, there was a gentle whisper, a still small voice that Elijah heard. 
was the voice of God who spoke to him, not in the big blast, not in the fa-la-la, but in the silent night of a whisper. See, when we stop talking and all goes silent, when you, when you quiet your spirit, it gives you the opportunity to hear God speak in that still, small voice. God's voice comes through to those who listen for it. Zechariah, he couldn't speak. Maybe he couldn't even hear for an entire pregnancy. Nine months. Zechariah did not have the ability to verbally resist Elizabeth's midnight cravings for pickles, peanut butter, and ice cream. She probably just pointed. Okay. He can't say anything. But we know that Zechariah paid attention to God during that time. Because we flip over just a few verses in Luke chapter 1. It's most Bibles, it has the simple heading in above verse 67, Zechariah's song. And when John the Baptist was born... And they named him, and his tongue was loosed. He burst forth in praise of God Almighty. See, we need more silent night, less fa-la-la, more times of, of quiet solitude. Intentionally move away from the fa-la-la and the noise of this season. The craziness and the busyness and all of our responsibilities can just create noise in our minds. And maybe we need a little less of this and we need more of the quiet, still, Advent wreath flickering with candles and time at the foot of the cross of Jesus. More silent night, less fa-la-la. People of God said, Amen.